Well, good morning, Village Church East. It is good to see you this morning. Welcome to our worship service here at Village Church East. My name is Craig Jarvis. I'm the lead pastor here. It's great to welcome you in-house. It's great to see some new folks venturing out, Megan. And uh, it's great to have you singing with us and doing the the announcements so I don't have to. Uh, By the way, Megan, you should know, and those of you watching at Bridgeway, you always remind me to tell Megan how special she is to you. So there you go, Megan. That is from all of our friends at Bridgeway. So there you go. She's, what's that? Oh, you're all special too, but you don't get to stand in front. Oh, oh, no, no. I'm sorry. Yes. Megan, you're special to us too. That's what that was. <laughs> Good to see you all this morning. Uh, I am excited to do this message with you uh, as we continue our, our conversation on decisions. I don't know if you've been listening to the podcast, but uh, these are new. I, I'm, I'm going to reduce them down to one day a week because it's, it's a little hard to keep up with two days a week. Uh, so I know that disappoints everybody. Most of you haven't checked them out yet. But if you'd like to check them out, there's a, there's a slew of them that are on there. I've been enjoying doing them because they deal with culture. They deal directly with what's going on in our world today and how we can think through things with a biblical mindset. This message today is kind of a, a continuation of that project. Because the children of Israel now have gone free from Egypt. They've been let free, and now they've made their way to Sinai. They've gotten the Ten Commandments, and now they get a slew of laws from Exodus 21 to 24 that are just talking about how these Ten Commandments play out in real time. And we've dealt with already two of the situations, protect those who are vulnerable, you remember that. And, uh, and that, now we're getting to the point where we are uh, talking about Uh, the influence that these guys are about to experience in the land in which they're going to enter, and God prepares them for what they're going to experience. And uh, there's a lot of parallels between them and us in our world today. So before we dive in, would you pray with me this morning, please? Father, give us grace so that when we look into your word, you can pull out things through the power of your Holy Spirit that we haven't seen before, that we need to be reminded of, that would encourage us, for those who need to be encouraged, that would compel us to those who need to be compelled, that would, that would prompt us to live the lives that we need to live in this ever-changing culture. I appreciate Beth's prayer where uh, we, we sang this wonderful song, Be Thou My Vision, and it is difficult at times to figure out what our vision should be. So help us to figure out what your vision is for us. Teach us, even this morning as we listen to your word, and for all of the prayer requests that, uh, that have gone unnamed and for the ones that we continue to pray for, Lord, you know each one. May you intervene. And I love the fact, Father, that you love not only to hear our prayers, but to answer them. And so, Father, we, we thank you for that and ask that you would intervene on our behalf in every one of these unspoken requests, every one that we continue to pray for at home. Uh, and thank you for the blessings that we have seen and do see on a regular basis. You have been very good to us. Be good to us again this morning as we now listen to what you would have to say to us from your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever feel like you walk into a situation where somebody knows something you don't? Now, typically, for me, this is a regular occurrence because I get invited to parties or bar mitzvahs or different events, not bar mitzvahs, but I get invited to all these different events, and my first question is, what is the dress code? Because I don't know what I'm walking into. And these days, you know, when, when, 20 years ago, when you did a wedding, you always wore a suit and tie. Now it could be a variety of different things. So I always want to know what I'm walking into. And sure as shooting, I'll always end up either, either raising the bar too much so I show up in a suit and tie and people are like, Craig, you, you got to lose the tie, dude. Or I show up dressed down and that's really bad because you can't fix that, right? So I, I feel like that happens to me once in a while when I walk into a situation that I'm not prepared for. Have you ever walked into a situation where somebody knew something about the situation that you didn't know? Sometimes that can be frustrating, right? It happened to me once when I bought a pair of x-ray glasses. Do you remember x-ray glasses? I was so excited about buying these x-ray glasses. I saved up my comic book little tabs. You know, you had to save up a certain amount of comic book tabs, and then you had to send in a certain amount of money, and then you'd wait for the mail because the mail was so much faster when we were kids. No, it wasn't, right? You order something now, it shows up on your doorstep overnight. But that's not the mail, though, is it? The mail's still slow. Anyway, uh, 
When I was a kid, I, I ordered these, these x-ray glasses, and I thought to myself, it's going to be so cool. I can see through walls. I can, I can see through stuff. It's going to be awesome. So I bought this pair of x-ray glasses, and I waited three months until they arrived in the mailbox. And then finally they arrived. And I, and I put them on, and I, and I looked through them, and I couldn't wait to see what I could see. Like I could see like molecules and little things through the walls, and, and I, maybe I could see through the ground and see like gold underneath the ground. And so I put them on, and I couldn't see anything. Not only could I not see through anything, I couldn't see through them because they were all painted. These weird, do you have the picture up there? These, these weird little squiggle things on the glasses. And they sell them to little kids and they say, hey, these are x-ray glasses. And I bought them. And they didn't work. So I wore them around to my friends. All right, you can throw it down there. So I wore them around to my friends, and I said, look, look at these x-ray glasses. Can you get them to work? Because I can't figure out how to get them to work. And all of my friends said, uh, Craig, you, you can't see through those. those. They don't work like that. I said, you've got to be kidding me. I, I saved up all my comic book tabs. I put all this money in the mail. I waited three months for these stupid x-ray glasses, and they don't even work. And they said, yeah, Craig, no, we, we knew they didn't work before you even ordered them. And I said, why didn't you tell me? Ever feel like somebody knows some things about some things that you don't know about? It's interesting in Scripture that um, unlike the x-ray glasses that everybody apparently knew was a scam and I didn't, sometimes people feel like this uh, when it comes to God. I'm pretty sure of this. God knows everything about my life. Are you pretty sure of that? Why does he know stuff we don't know? And why doesn't he tell us? Ever walk in a situation where somebody knew something you don't know and you just wish they would tell them so you don't make a fool out of yourself? I'm pretty sure God wants me to move in a direction, but I'm, I'm kind of unsure as to what that direction should be. When I was in, when I was in college, I, I ended up doing, when I was looking for a college, I wanted to find out where God wanted me to go to college. I sweat over this decision. I thought, oh God, I'm praying. I, I'm praying constantly. Show me what college I should go to. Drop uh, something out of the sky. Write it in the clouds. What is the name of the college I should go to? And I never got anything. So I had to do my research and figure out what I could afford, and I had to figure out uh, what would give me the degree that I wanted to, to what, that I thought in my youth what I wanted to get. I, I did all my research, but in the meantime, I'm still looking for swirls in my coffee. I'm trying to figure out, okay, God, make, show me a direction, special verses in the Bible, anything. I just need something to verify my decision. And finally, I made the decision based on what I could afford, what was logical for me to do, and I ended up going to this college where I met my wife, and better than my degree, better than anything I've ever received in my life, I got my wife from that college. That's amazing to me. I didn't get any cloud figures in the sky, didn't get any swirls in my coffee. I got, I got no verses out of the Bible that said, Craig, thou shalt go to blank college. None of that. And I begged God for some sort of a sign, because I knew he knew something about all this that I didn't know. But he never told me. And now I find out that my decision to go to the college that I went to got me a wonderful wife and a beautiful family that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Wouldn't you just like for God to tell you what you're in for in life? Wouldn't you just like for him to tell you what's around? You, you, you see the corner up there. You just want to know what's around. It's like me when I go fishing. Pat and I have gone fishing before. And you're in the water, you're in the stream, and you're in this great hole, and you're pulling trout out, and it's exciting and everything. And then you look up around the corner, and you think to yourself, what's around that corner? And so you make the trek all the way up there, and sometimes it's hard, and sometimes it's easy, and then you get around the corner, and you find out it's garbage. There's nothing there. And you're just thinking to yourself, I wish I hadn't known that 500 yards ago, right? You just wish God would tell you what's around the next corner. What does God know that we don't know? The Hebrews are about to enter the promised land, a land they've never been to before, a land that nobody in their tribe has ever seen before. Only God knows what's across the border. Only God knows what's in that land. Now, God has told them a little bit about the land. He said, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Oh, you know that, right? What does that mean? I don't know, but it's a land that's flowing with lots of cows and lots of bees, as far as I know. It flows with milk and honey. We know in the Hebrew that means it is a luscious, wonderful, plentiful, producing land. That's all they knew. They didn't know who lived there. They didn't know what those people were like. 
All they knew was this was the promised land and it was going to be great. And that's all they knew. They also didn't know anything other than how to be slaves. All they knew was how to be taskmaster savvy. Whatever your Egyptian slave master wanted you to do, you did that. Don't make any, don't pull any punches. Don't make any surprise decisions. You don't get to make decisions. Whatever your master tells you, that's what you do. And the next morning when you wake up, you do the same thing. You don't get to make long-term goals. That's all they knew. And now God is saying, I want to build you into a nation. You're going to create a nation all by yourselves. And he gives them laws to build this nation, uh, build this nation with. He wants, he wants to give them laws. We talked about this to protect the vulnerable. He wants to give them laws on how to be a good neighbor. We talked about that one. You've got to be good neighbors. You've got to protect the vulnerable. God is setting them up for success. He's giving them laws that they needed to maintain in order to get there. But they needed to be aware of this one truth before they, before they crossed the border. And that is this. God will always know something you don't. And you have to be okay with that. They had to learn how to trust him. These next few verses are instructions for how they were to live in this new land, carrying out God's commission for them, doing things that they would not understand that they needed to do. So we pick up the story in Exodus 23 and verse 20, uh, 21, verse 23. Here's how it goes. When my, uh, 23, 23, sorry. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, have you ever seen so many ites in your life? God says, I will blot them out. These were all people, people groups that were living inside Canaan. And God says, I'm gonna bring you to their land and I'm gonna eradicate them. You are gonna take over. Verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Now we look at this through the eyes of 2021 individuals, caring, loving Christians, who think to ourselves, why would God eradicate people from a land and give it to his people? Well, don't forget, it's God's land to begin with. And God has promised this land to Abraham a hundred years, uh, many years earlier, like 500 years before this. This is a promise. That's why it's called the promised land. And what you don't know, maybe if you don't know history, is all of these groups that I just read to you were straight up evil. Evil to the core. There was, they were doing human sacrifices in this land. It was normal. They were burning babies so that rain would fall. That was normal. They were doing seances, witchcraft, sorcery. All of this was very normal. This was the culture of the land. There's one verse in scripture that said, God needed to allow the sin of the Amorites to completely build up, almost like a flood scenario. So that when he brought the flood in Noah's day, God said, I can't even see over the sin because there's so much of it. Same thing happened in Jonah's day. When Jonah was sent to the Ninevites, God said, I gotta send you to the Ninevites because there's so much sin. It's actually piled so high, I can't even see over it. It's the same kind of situation here. There's so much evil in this land. And when you think idol worship, don't think like idol worship like coming to church on Sunday where you may or you may not spend some time and then it's you come in, you do your time and it's over. <laughs> no. Idol worship is much different than that. When you think of idol worship, think Satan worship. This is satanic. Devil worship. In other words, God knows something about this country, this land, that the Israelites do not know. And they would need to be vigilant in their task. That's why God begins this whole section with these verses. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You wonder why those verses are there? They're there because people were doing them. People were doing this on a regular basis so that it wasn't just the weird person down the road that's sleeping with his cow. This is normal. 
When you think of what's going on in Israel, in, in, not Israel, when you think of what's going on in Canaan, think evil. It is a land devoted not to God, but to evil. No Hebrews were used to this kind of life in Egypt. They were not ready for what they were about to encounter. They had never walked into this level of evil and debauchery. They've never seen this level of evil and debauchery in their lives. And they were about to experience some things that would shock them at first. You could imagine how shocking some of these practices would be, wouldn't you? <laughs> when you walk in and go, oh, I've never seen that before. Some of, these, some of these activities, and you can read about them all you want, but there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on in this land. And if you walked in on it, you would go, oh, that, there's something wrong about that. It's, it's shocking. But here's the deal, church. Given enough time, those shocking things become intriguing things. When you watch evil long enough, and at first you go, that shocks me to my core. If you allow it to continue, it will turn into an intrigue. You will wonder, how is this done? Why, why would people do this? And, 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 and it seems kind of different, kind of, kind of an intriguing thing. And more time into this kind of culture would only pull the Hebrews toward this evil behavior themselves. You might be questioning, like, how would this stuff tempt somebody. Craig, this kind of evil, this kind of debauchery, that even in the, only the three verses that we just read, and there's lots more, and I don't want to talk about them in a public setting, but I'm trying to dance nicely on these eggshells. There's stuff going on in this, in this land. God gives them the rules not to do the stuff because the stuff's being done. You might be thinking to yourself, well, how can this be tempting? How would something like that tempt anybody? That's disgusting. I remember the first time I saw an Ouija board. I thought to myself, that's kind of weird. That's kind of weird. And, and the more I know about the satanic realm, the more I know what that Ouija board stands for. It's, it, it'll come across. I, re, I remember one time I was a youth pastor for years, and I took my kids to a, a, one of those uh, uh, activity centers where you get the tickets, you know, and if you get enough tickets, you win a prize. And I remember, this was years ago, and I remember the first time I... I, I walked up there, they had like these, these cool guns or the, the, you know, the elephants or the, you know, the, for all of us that only get 50,000 tickets, you get the eraser to a pencil or something like that. I mean, you got nothing out of these tickets, right? And then I remember one time I went in there and I was taking my kids in there all the time because we live in Chicago and you can't go outside all the time. And one time I walked in there and they had a Ouija board right there and you could get it for a certain amount of tickets. It's intriguing. There's a pull to it. And I thought to myself, when I, when, I first thought of, when I first thought of it, I thought, oh, that's terrible. And then I thought, how does it work? How does that little thing move? It is kind of intriguing. And, and I see, I see uh, things like it on, uh, using it, people using it on TV and things. And I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, that's kind of, listen, dancing with the devil always has a tone of intrigue to it. Always does. And for those of us that are adults, we know this. I mean, we've kind of grown out of it to some point, but we've only replaced some of those intriguing things with other intriguing things. When you're, when you're young, it's just there's a pull to it. There's an, there's an intrigue. There's a fascination with evil. I remember the first time I, I saw a guy on TV who could talk to dead people. I thought, oh, that's really cool. And, and he was saying he would be surrounded by an audience and he would be standing up front. This was years ago, but he had his own show and I can't remember what channel it was on, but I would, I would watch it. I was thinking to myself, how does he know that? How does he know that about this, this woman's brother that was killed by a, 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 a drunk driver last year? How would he know those things? And the woman that he was talking to was going, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I don't know how that happens. All I know is that to be absent from the body is to be absent from the body. There's no, there's no ghosts parading around. If, you, if you're able to talk to somebody that was alive and is not alive anymore, you're not talking to somebody. You're talking to something. Satan will parade himself as an angel of light. Did you know that's in the Bible? Satan will parade himself as an angel. Would you like to see an angel? It'd be wonderful, right? I'd love to see an angel. An angel of light, oh, you know, show up in my bedroom. That would have been nice when I was looking for a college. Give me an angel of light. Craig, you should go to University of Phoenix. Okay, I got it. Angel of light. Satan will do that. He'll come to you in any intriguing form you would like. 
But the end goal is not to give you a beautiful wife and a beautiful family. The end goal is to destroy you by getting you to trust what he says and stop having faith in what God is telling you. Those kinds of things are compelling. That verse, by the way, if you're looking for it, is in 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15. Satan and his demons disguise themselves in any way they want to so that they can lead everybody astray. Actually, it says there to pull our minds away from Christ. So God warns the Israelites, you're about to go into a land where this stuff is normal. Beware. Because to you, you might look at some of these child sacrifices and think to yourself, that is disgusting. But given enough time, it will turn into intrigue and then it will pull you away from God. Avoid all inclinations to dabble in whatever you're about to encounter. He goes on to say in verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them at all. With them or their gods, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you, hear what it says now, sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Do you see that God knows something that they don't hear? Whatever it is that they're about to encounter in this culture is going to constantly pull them away from God. It will become a snare. Do you know what a snare is? When I fish, I think I know all my illustrations today are about fishing, all right? And x-ray glasses. But don't do them both at the same time because you'll never see the fish. So when I'm fishing, I constantly think to myself, I wonder what's under my feet. And I have to be careful. I'm thinking to myself, you know, did somebody leave an old bear trap out here? I think about that. Like, and I'm, you know, then, you know, pray to God my cell phone works. Pat, come and rescue me. (laughs) Do you know what a snare is? A snare is something that's hidden. So it can grab you when you least expect it. That's what a snare is. Shall I read the verse one more time? They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a what? A snare to you. You won't see it coming. It is a pull of the human heart toward evil. God knows our tendency to put up with evil for all the prudent reasons we can think of. But in the end, it is darkness in this land. To call these powers of darkness up, there were dwellers in this land that would do all kinds of evil rituals. In case I didn't make this completely clear, one of these gods' names was Moloch. Have you ever heard of Moloch before? Moloch was a god that would be fired up. You'd always build a fire underneath of him. And he would be made of metal, some some sort of metal that would heat up. And when you build a fire underneath Moloch, Moloch's hands would be out like this, or there would be a hole in his belly. And the reason is, that's where you would give your sacrifice. Do you know what you sacrifice to Moloch? Babies. You would bring a baby and put, put the baby in the hands or in the hole until the baby died. That is how you sacrificed to Moloch. Now, does that intrigue you? Does it repel you? You see, whatever repels you now will intrigue you tomorrow. And you think to yourself, Craig, that would never happen. Maybe God knows something we don't know. God warns his people against these things constantly. Leviticus 18, 21 says this, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch. See it right there? Don't give any of your children to Moloch and profane the name of your Lord, your God. I am the Lord. You shall not, we go on further. Don't lie with a male as you do with a woman. That is an abomination. Did you know that was in the Bible? And you shall not lie with any animal. Oh, like some of this stuff is, even in our culture today, we're going, why is that there? Oh, I can understand that. No, why is that there? Oh, I can understand. We do the same thing today. It's all in the same verse. You shall not lie with any animal, so to make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. Like we need somebody to tell us that. Well, apparently we do. They did and we do today. These guys were about to dabble in the occult in ways that would bring them to ruin. And that's why the occult had to be eradicated. They weren't sacrificing to idols. They're sacrificing to the devil. Don't think idol worship. Think devil worship. He goes on further in verse 24. Don't make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all of the nations I'm driving out before you, by this, all of the nations have become unclean. They're all doing it. 
and the land became unclean. See what God is saying? Promised land. The land promised to Abraham has become polluted so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Don't you love that picture? The land couldn't take it anymore. The land has had enough of this innocent blood flowing to the ground. The land expelled them. Now, you might be tempted to say, Craig, only the silly and the foolish people would be involved in this. Like, normal people would be able to see through this. Okay, let's play that game. Who's the wisest man in the Old Testament? Come on now, you know this, don't you? Who's the wisest man in the Old Testament? Solomon. He asked for one thing from God, and what was that? Wisdom, and God gave it to him. He was the wisest man in Scripture. We even talk about some of his actions today because they're really, really amazingly wise decisions. And under him, the nation grew like crazy because he was such a wise leader. Listen to what the wisest man in the Bible did. First Kings 11, verse 1. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Solomon loved the women. Do you get it? All kinds of women, all different, all different backgrounds. He liked the women. All from the nations concerning which the Lord said to the people, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they be with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Love is never a bad thing, is it? It was for the wisest man in the world. And you might think to yourself, well, Craig, he only married them because he wanted, to, he wanted to redeem them. He wanted to bring them out of their evil cultures and bring them into a culture of God. He wanted to be a good influence on them. He wanted to tell them about God. Maybe that's why he did it. You remember the snare conversation we just had? You see, it's interesting what evil will do. We want to redeem it, but evil has a tendency to suck us in faster than we can redeem it. So you want to know what happened to the wisest man in the world? Sure you do. Verse 6, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for who, church? Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he built it on the mountain in Jerusalem. You know where that mountain is? It's right where you see Jerusalem Mountain today. He built an altar to Moloch. He built a God that would burn babies. Wisest man in the world. Solomon did not only allow for idol worship, he built temples so that it could continue. Why? Because evil is a snare. Listen, I don't think we give the devil enough credit. I really don't. I think, to our, I think we think to ourselves he was born yesterday and we're smarter than he is. He's very wise. He's been around quite, quite a long time. He's played this game many times before with people just like us. He knows how to get to us. God knew something that Israel did not. The pull of evil would take over their drive to worship God alone and eventually the intrigue that the Hebrews felt would turn into participation tomorrow. You see, it went from disgust to intrigue to participation. And God knew something that they did not. Verse 13. He drives this even deeper. Pay attention to all I've said to you, God says, and make no mention of the name of other gods. Don't let it be heard on your lips. Do you get it? <laughs> it's like, him whose name shall not be heard. What is it from... Uh, that, yeah, what is it? The, how do you say it rightly? I know it's Voldemort, but what, what do you say? What's the phrase? Thank you very much, Cody, you geek. That's right. It is he who shall... <laughs> uh, Cody. Cody's a great guy. So, Cody, yeah, thank, thank you. You saved me. He who shall not be named. You see, God is saying, I don't even want you to talk about this kind of evil. Don't mention these God's names. Don't even talk about them. Because God knows something these Hebrews do not know. They are about to take on the powers of darkness and they would need protection. Look at verse 20. Behold, I'm sending an angel before you to guard you. Are you getting the idea this is a warfare they're about to enter? 
Look at this. I'm sending an angel before you to guard you in the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him. This is the angel. And obey his voice. Don't rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Now, it's very hard to figure out what God is talking about here other than God's presence has been with his people this whole time, through the cloud by day and the fire by night. They could always look out the flap of their tent and they could see there's God. He's right in the middle of our, our tent. He hasn't in the middle of our camp. He hasn't left us. God's presence was always above the tabernacle. His presence led them. So there's an idea that when God, when these people came into the promised land, God would send the spiritual army in front of them and drive out the inhabitants. It is constantly referred to in scripture and it's started to be referred to right here. It's an angel of God, some powerful angel that would take on the powers of evil. There is a spiritual battle going on in Canaan that the Israelites will not see, but this angel will lead the army against it. God takes care of his people. God would fight for them in the spiritual realm, as long as they live for him in the physical realm. Let me say that one more time, because it's pretty good. God would fight for them in the spiritual realm, as long as they live for him in the physical realm. Verse 27. I will send my terror before you, and throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Don't you love that verse? When your enemy turns their back to you, what are they doing? They're running. They're running away. In other words, God is saying, you're gonna see success like you never believed before. There's a spiritual battle you're about to enter, but I'm leading the way, and I'm gonna clear out the land in front of you as long as you keep your commitment to me. Just keep, keep up with the mission. Trust me. They'll run from you like they knocked over a hornet's nest. Look at verse 28. I will send, get this hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. Don't you love it? Have you ever knocked over a hornet's nest by mistake? What do you do? Oh, that's intriguing. <laughs> what do you do when you knock over a hornet's nest? You run like there's no tomorrow. God would, God's saying there's a spiritual battle going on that's, that's never had it before because Canaan has belonged to the devil. And I'm bringing my army in there. There's going to be a battle taking place in the spiritual realm. You're going to carry on the battle in the physical realm. But I'm going to make it so that your enemies turn their backs and run from you like they kicked over a hornet's nest. Isn't that great? Little by little, I'll drive them out, verse 30, before you until you have increased and possessed the land. In other words, God says it's going to take a while, but it's going to be worth it. Keep going. Don't get tired. Don't get, don't get weary of listening to God. He knows something you don't. Keep up with the mission. Verse 22, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemy and an adversary to your adversaries. Like the flood came and destroyed the Egyptian army, the Israelites would come in and destroy the armies of the devil. Isn't that great? They'd bring a flood to this land and they would cleanse it and turn this devil worship into worship of God. These Hebrews would be the catalyst to send up, set up a nation that no one on earth has ever seen before. And it's gonna be amazing. But God knows this. The moment they give in to temptation and stop removing the idols and purifying the land, they would be their own downfall. God knows something they do not. And listen, because we read ahead, guess who was right? Guess who was right? Are you surprised? You see, we get to read ahead. We find out what happens next. Every major leader of God had to do one thing before they stepped out for God. Do you know what it was? Clean the idols out of their house. Gideon had to clean the idols out of his house. Samuel's sons were idol worshipers. Samuel had to clean the idols out of his house. David allowed idol worship into his own home. Solomon built temples to false gods. Most of Israel's kings had problems with idol worship, and the ones who cleaned out the idols were the best kings ever, and there was only a small handful. Every one of God's people, every one of God's leaders struggled with idol worship. Who saw that coming? Who saw that coming, church? God did. He knows something we don't. This was a culture of the land. And these Hebrews were sadly ignorant that they could dabble in the culture and stay pure to God and stay on mission. The pull of the Canaanite culture and the temptation to apathy, to, to stand for God, was too great for them. Let me say that one more time because this is where it starts hitting home a little bit. 
the pull of the Canaanite culture and the temptation to apathy to stand for God was too great for them. Satan got to these great men and women through their culture. It seemed normal. It was intriguing at first. It was, it was repelling at first. Then it was intriguing and then it was a snare. And God's people adapted to the culture of Canaan incredibly quickly. <laughs> incredibly quickly. The last chapter of Joshua is a fascinating chapter. Because the first chapter of Joshua, Joshua gets to the promised land and he starts dividing up all of these different tribes. Manasseh, Ephraim, you know, all these tribes, Judah, all these different tribes. They all had jobs to do. They all had sections of the land that they were to take for God. So Joshua, the whole book of Joshua is Joshua is fighting with them. They're taking the land. They're doing the mission of God. And it's going pretty well. They hit some hiccups along the way, but it's going pretty well. By the end of the book of Joshua, they had taken so much of the land that it was time to divide up and conquer. So they divided up all the tribes and they said, now what we've been doing all of these years, keep on doing. Don't give up on the mission. Don't forget what we are supposed to do for God in this land. And they divide it up. That's the last chapter of the book of Joshua. Do you know what the next book of the Bible is? Judges. Do you have any idea what will happen in Judges? All hell breaks loose. Do you want to know why? <laughs> Didn't see that coming. Because when the tribes divided up to do the job on their own, they got apathetic. They started looking at the culture and saying, ah, they're not that bad. I don't see why we need to purge the land. Sure, they have some evil tendencies, but we can redeem them. Let's bring them in. Let's be a part of what they're doing. And it became a snare to them. And do you know how long their commitment to God lasted after Joshua ended and Judges began? Do you know how long it lasted? Two generations. The children the parents had, they did pretty well. The children they had, hmm, they fell. If you read the book of Judges, it's a great read. Uh, You'll find uh, there's Philistines in there. There's all kinds of people of the land, and they're constantly warring with the Israelites trying to take their land back. And it goes on for, for hundreds of years. In two generations, the work of taking the land for God stopped, and the temptation to mirror the culture became too much. So enemies would attack and God would raise up a judge and the judge would lead armies and they would put down the, other, the enemy and they'd have peace for a year or two. And then, and then another army would attack and they'd have, they'd have another judge that would come along and he would, he would lead armies and they would put the Philistines down and they would have peace for 40 or 50 years. And that went on and on through 12 judges. And by the way, do you know how the book of Judges ends? Any guesses? Do you think it went better or worse? because they never completely finished the the job. They would just put down the enemies and then they would go back to their old ways. Do you know what the last verse of Judges is? Here's the very last verse of Judges. Here's, Here's what the outcome is. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is the outcome. Why is God so demanding right off the bat? Why is God so demanding the Hebrews eradicate the land of its, of its inhabitants? I'm sure some of the Hebrews thought that. I'm sure they did. They must have thought, this doesn't seem fair. What's the big deal? Why can't I do these things? Like One of the things is don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Like What is the problem in that? But if you do boil a goat in its mother's milk and invite my family over for dinner, we'd like to order in. That was one of the laws. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. There were all kinds of weird laws like this. Why can't I talk to a sorceress? Why can't I have sex with whoever I want to have sex with or apparently whatever I want to have sex with? Because God knows something these Hebrews do not know. And listen, church, God knows something about life that we don't know. Wiersbe says, before we judge Israel too harshly for this, We need to ask how much God's people today are compromising with the gods of this world, such as money, pleasure, and success. 
God gives me directives on how to live my life too. Some of them don't make sense, don't you think? How do we feel about the directives that God gives to us in life? You can go to churches where they'll change the Bible to meet whatever you want God's directives to be in life. Or you can read God's word and just figure it out for yourself. Because it's right there. And in our church at Village Church East, this is what we encourage you to do. Please read anything you want to. Crack it open. Any page, take a look. Because you can read it as well as I can. But you have to do some wild, crazy theological calisthenics to get the Bible to say what our culture says the Bible says. The Bible says lots of things to us. The Bible says to turn the other cheek. Don't even have a hint of sexual immorality among us. Forgive your enemies. Seek first the kingdom of God. Pray for those who persecute you. Don't judge lest you be judged. How about every fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. How about all of those things? We are, we are told this is the kind of life God wants us to live. And what is our reaction to that? That sounds kind of archaic. That sounds a little out of date. A little traditional for me. Our typical responses are, but God, that's not convenient for me. Uh, by God, but God, if I do that, I'm going to make enemies. But God, if I do that, I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb. But God, I want to blank, whatever it is. But God, that doesn't make sense. But God, what is the big deal? And church, maybe God knows something about life in 2021 that we don't know. That's the whole point. Maybe he knows something we don't know. And in our rush to live in a world of tolerance, we have made Christianity tolerant. But God never did that. You see, God gives us directives to live by, whether we like it or not, whether we understand them or not, whether we appreciate them or not. Like a parent who knows something about life we don't know, that parent pushes us off and says, for God's sake, make sure you... Wear clean underwear, brush your teeth, keep your dorm room clean, whatever it is. Why? Because that parent knows something about life of somebody that doesn't wear clean underwear, I guess. The, The parent knows something about life the child does not. God is way more than a parent, church. He is a God of the universe. He might know something about life we don't know. Maybe God knows something about my world I don't appreciate fully. And maybe his goal is not to hurt me. Maybe his goal is to protect me, like he did with the Hebrews. And maybe he gives me these rules to live by so that I can simply thrive, so I can trust him. And it begins with that, trusting God. Here's a few so what's. These are quick. Number one, trust that God is preparing you now for a trial yet to come. (laughs) You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But God is giving you directives to live by. He gives you these directives in a variety of ways. You can read about them in Scripture, but he also leads you through his Holy Spirit. You ever did something you thought to yourself, I don't know if that was the right thing to do or not. That could be the Holy Spirit prompting you. Trust that God is preparing you now for trials yet to come. Your greatest preparation today is unwavering obedience to what God says in his word, to what God is leading us to do. There's no command that God gives us that is not for our best and his glory. Let me say that one more time. That's a good one. You could tweet that. There's no command that God gives us that is not for our best and his glory. He is in the next room beckoning us through. He is around the next corner telling us walk forward. He is there before we get there. This is in our very purpose as a church. We say go, grow, and you see you can't overcome unless you're growing. And you can't grow unless you're trusting. You can't grow unless you look at God and say, okay, God, you might know something I don't know, so I'm gonna trust you do and obey you today. And if you, if you go and you grow, you can overcome. We're more prepared to overcome today, tomorrow if we live for him today. Number two, trust that no law of God is frivolous. <laughs> God doesn't sit back in his leisure chair and think about all of the ways to make our lives miserable. <laughs> I'm going to take that away from them and I'm going to take that away from them and they're, oh, they're going to hate this one. I'll take that away from them too. Some people think that's all that God does is he takes stuff away that we love. That's not what God does. He takes stuff that will destroy us and replaces us with stuff that is good for us, that will bless our families and bless the circles of influence in which we live. All of God's laws are intentional. They're all purposeful. They're all for our well-being. We may not like them. 
We may not like them at all. We may live in a culture that says, you guys are way old-fashioned. Everybody's doing it. Come on. This is normal. Come on. It's time to pull the church into the 21st century. Sure it is if God changes. But you got a major problem with that. See, the Bible says that God never changes. His mercies are new every morning, but he's not. His faithfulness is as, is as ready as the, as the sun moving across the sky. His faithfulness is constantly, but he never changes. His character is always the same. God reminds them of their original purpose for him when he gives them this verse, and I love this verse. You probably know it, Jeremiah 29, 11. God says to us, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for, what does it say, church? Welfare and not for evil, to give you a what, church? A future and a hope. You may look at God like a parent that wants to take away everything fun in life, but ultimately what he's doing is preparing you for things you may not know are coming or things that may hurt you that you have yet to understand. Number three, trust that God knows more than we do and we should listen to him. He just knows more than us and that's kind of where this starts. If you're entering into a relationship with God, this is the point where you need to give up the most. You've gotta say, God knows something more than I do and I trust him. Are there areas of life that just seem natural for you but you have yet to ask God for his opinion in those things? You should ask for his opinion. You should dig it out of scripture. I preach every, every Sunday because I believe that the Bible speaks to this culture today. And it does. Just that some of the things we don't like to hear. Does God have the right to dictate every part of my life? This is the definition of following Jesus, by the way. When we say we're followers of Jesus, we are saying he has the right to dictate every part of my life. If you have a problem with that statement, you have a problem with following Jesus. <laughs> you can't have it both ways. You either follow Jesus and give him that authority or you don't. Somebody's got to occupy the seat of authority. And if it's not him, it's probably you or somebody playing you, one of the two. 60 years after Sinai, we come to the last chapter of Joshua. As I said, Joshua, 24, he's been in charge since Moses had died. He's done a pretty good job of things. He is, by the way, one of the most amazing characters of Scripture. His devotion to God is his sword on the battlefield. Do you, do you remember the time when the, the sun stopped in the sky and, and he just said, God, I need more time to kill the enemy. Do you remember that? And the sun stopped. In, if you haven't read that, read the book of Joshua. It is compelling. So the sun stops in the sky and, and Joshua goes, yeah, let's go kill more. So he goes into the battlefield and kills, kills more people. He was 100 years old when that battle occurred. This guy wouldn't stop. He was a spy that went into, into the promised land and said, he came back and he was going, yeah, we can take it, we can do it, you guys. Come on, let's go. It's, uh, sure, they're giants. Sure, they got big, big arms and big, big feet. They're all, they all look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but God said they're ours. God said the land is ours. Let's go in. Joshua and Caleb came back and they said, let's go. And the rest of the guys came back and they said, oh, it wouldn't be prudent. And so for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. And I can just imagine every morning, Joshua woke up and thought to himself, oh, I wish they'd listened to me. Wandering through this dust bowl while the land gets more polluted and stronger. So when Joshua gets to the border of Canaan, he's going, okay, Moses, you're dead, hallelujah, because that has to happen, by the way, to fulfill prophecy. Let's get in there. And they take Jericho, first on the list. Isn't that a great story? Remember Jericho? And the, the people are looking at Joshua going, How, look, these walls are, they got chariot races on the top of these walls. These are thick walls. How are we gonna, and Joshua goes, don't worry about it, God will do it for us. Wouldn't you like to be led by a guy? Like, I'm sorry I'm not that kind of guy, but wouldn't you like to be led by that kind of a guy? So they march around the walls of Jericho, and what happened? <laughs> walls come down. And in the meantime, they got a handful of deserters from Jericho who were tired of the evil in the country and converted to God. That happened all the time. You know, Caleb was not a Jew. 
God is bringing in all these people. He's bringing in refugees. He's bringing in anybody that would follow God. God brings in to be a part of Israel. He's not wiping them off without question. He's giving them chances to, to bend and to bend the knee to, to Christ. Rahab is one of the most popular out of Jericho. 60 years after Sinai, Joshua is about to die. He calls a big meeting together, brings all the tribes together. It's the last book. He says, listen, I'm about to die. I'm old. It's over for me. I need you to keep on mission. Don't get pulled in by the intrigue. Stop dabbling with the idols. It is devil worship. Cut it out. And the people said, yeah, we're on board. And Joshua said to them, I don't think you know what I'm saying. You can read about it in Joshua 24. It's, it's, it's amazing. There literally is an altar call. Everybody comes forward and Joshua says, everybody go back to your seats. <laughs> and they all go back to their seats. And Joshua said, you obviously aren't listening. This is going to take commitment. And they said, their response was, our commitment is on the backs of our children. We swear on their lives. We will commit to taking the land. Two generations. It's amazing what happens in two generations, isn't it? Do you remember two generations ago? The speech that Joshua gives is incredible. You probably have heard a piece of it. It's one of the most amazing speeches that we have in Scripture, one of the most popular in the Old Testament. At this great meeting, everybody was there, and like a parent, warning their children of what they're about to encounter. Joshua stands up and he says, Moses is not here You will not have me around any longer. Keep on mission. And here's what he says in verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, you love this verse? Fear the Lord and serve him in the sincerity and faithfulness of your heart. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Because it's going to be somebody, all you slaves, you're used to serving somebody. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or, you ever catch this? The gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, let's say it together, church. We will serve the Lord. What a great speech. You guys do what you want. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Church, our mission is the same. Our purpose is to stand out, not conform. God says, I'm going to light you up, and nobody in their right mind lights up a room and then covers it with a sack. I'm going to light you, out, light you up so that you stick out. You're going to be salt. You're going to be light. You're going to be set ablaze on purpose because you're on mission. We take the culture. The culture doesn't take us. Conformity to the ways of this world will only get in the way of what God wants to do. So I invite you, church, to the great meeting, and I reiterate the words that this great leader Joshua said on this incredible, life-changing day. Church, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether it's the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, let's change that. Whether it's the gods the world is throwing at you to bend your knee to, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell, or whatever's coming next that the world will tell you, you must conform. You do what you want. (laughs) But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Wouldn't that be great if we had an army of believers that would memorize and quote that verse to their children and their children's children and live like they mean it. How many snares could we avoid, church? How many snares could we avoid? Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for our chat this morning. It's been a tough one because it's so pertinent to where we live. Every one of us is involved with our culture. We have to be. We're in it. You don't want us to eradicate the culture. You just want us to lead in it. So, Father, give us the ability to stand up for you in a world that doesn't. 
to appreciate your commands and cling to them in a world that mocks them. To be able to lead our circles of influence with unashamed authority coming from your word and not conform to this world. For we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so, Father, in a world that seeks to transform the gospel so that they can look more like the culture, let us never be so brash as to think we need to redefine anything that is so redemptive, so powerful, and so life-changing. Thank you that you never change. And where we may change the message, the mission is always the same. Or where we may change the method, the message is always the same. The mission is always the same. Thank you for making us ambassadors of yours, for lighting us up so that we can stick out in this world. I pray that we would never get tired of it and never capitulate to whatever Satan would seek to feed us tomorrow. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we come to communion, and this is how we finish our time together each Sunday. After Joshua gave that speech, you should know he built an altar you can read about it in Joshua 24. It's a great passage of scripture. He builds an altar. And the reason he built an altar and had everybody participate is because he wanted their children and their children and their children to always come back to the place of commitment, a place of rem- remembrance. As you would be walking on the banks of the Jordan, you would come across this altar and, and you might say to your father, or say to your mother, hey, what is that altar there for? What is, what is, why is that out in the middle of a field somewhere? And your parents would tell you, it's because Joshua had an altar call one day and he told us to all go sit back down because he wouldn't take it. He wouldn't believe what we were saying. Here's what happened that day. We committed ourselves. Joshua, this great leader said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we're on board with him. And Jimmy, we're, you're, you're a part of this legacy. I love the fact that God gives us reminders that we can revisit to pull our hearts and our minds back to the decisions we've made. And I want to tell you, if you come to this church, the only symbol that you will see in this church is that cross right there. That is our reminder of what it means to follow Jesus. That is our reminder of what it means for God to love us. That is our reminder to to, to understand the extent of which God went so that we could have a relationship with him. When we come to the communion table, it's just a reminder of that same truth. You drink the juice, you eat the bread, nothing spectacular, nothing magical. We're not, we're not into any of that stuff. That's not what happens. It is a reminder to us. The juice represents the blood. The cracker, whatever it is, represents the body of Jesus. Both of these were necessary for us to have peace with God. The reason you do it every Sunday with us is because we want to constantly point you and your children and your children's children to the thing that really matters in life. And it's not a changing culture or whatever burgeoning cause they feed us next. The thing that changes this world is is the cross of Jesus Christ always has been, always will be. Causes will come and will go, but God will remain forever. The church will remain forever. That cross. You know how people have tried to get rid of this? They've tried to eradicate the church. Multiple can't do it. Because that cross is our reminder of how much God loved us. If you're at home, uh, we invite you to participate with us in the same way that we're doing here. Find a cracker. My kids use goldfish once in a while. Whatever you've got in your pantry, find some juice. We want you to participate with us so that you can remember through a physical act, a spiritual reality that because Jesus gave his life for us, we can be right with God. That's why we do what we do. You may be here thinking to yourself, well, Craig, I don't feel good taking communion all the time. You don't know what I did last night, last week, whatever. (sighs) The purpose of communion is not to make you clean. If you know Christ as your savior, you're as clean as you can be. The purpose of communion is to draw your heart back to where it should be. You of all people should take communion. It's to pull us back to the reminder of what life is really all about. So I encourage you to come to the table, get ready at home. I'm going to give you a moment of silence if you wouldn't mind and just take a moment 
pray to God. Maybe, maybe God has laid something on your heart this morning you need to just have a conversation with him about. Do that right now in, in this short little while. Prepare your, prepare your mind and your heart and um, make sure you give him this, this next 10 minutes like, like nobody's business. And then we're, gonna, then we're gonna come up and we're gonna sing. Uh, I'm gonna read a passage of scripture. Don't eat and drink yet. Hang on to it. If you'd come forward and grab uh, the cup at the front and the, the cracker, hang on to it. And then I'll come up and read. We'll all take together. The reason we do that is because we're all in this together. <laughs> you love that phrase. It's getting a little overused, right? Uh, we are. Uh, in this case, it's a spiritual reality. We're all in this together. We all need Jesus. And uh, only he can change this world starting with us, as for me and my house. Let me give you a moment of silence. You can pray to the Lord.